1: I guess we're all used to the fact these days that technological progress can't be stopped. But it's progressing so fast that we constantly seem to be playing catch-up, especially when it comes to large social institutions that perhaps aren't so quick on their feet. The law is one of those areas where technology poses constant challenges and where if you happen to be a legal professional, it can really help to be a philosopher as well. On RN, this is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the program.
0: I think now, because of the march of uh, technology, the novel cases come are starting to come quicker and faster, and because of that, there's more room for uh, a sort of philosophical argument to win the day, because in these cases, uh, the laws kind of run out.
1: Alan McKay is a lecturer in criminal law at the University of Sydney. He's also an affiliate member of the Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics at Macquarie University. Alan McKay is interested in neurotechnology and criminal law, and this has led him to contemplate the legal issues raised by such hypothetical acts of cyber bastardry as neurobionic revenge porn perpetrated via a brain-computer interface. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, so let's begin with brain-computer interface interfaces or BCIs. What are these things?
0: They're bits of technology that enable a person to interact with um, a computer in a sort of disembodied way, so by thought alone. So uh, by certain thoughts, the um, interface will detect the neural activity associated with those thoughts, and it, it might enable somebody to control a cursor if they were interacting with a computer, or control an external device like a wheelchair if, if they had some uh, disability, or, or perhaps uh, even a, something like a drone. Or also, it's possible to have um, external BCIs that uh, are not implanted into, obviously, uh, implanting something into one's brain is not something to be done lightly, at least with current technology. And you can have external ones that you just clip on with a sort of headset and they enable people to do something similar, although my understanding is that they're not quite as good as... uh, implanted ones in terms of uh, reading signals from the brain
1: still it's interesting that the external ones exist because this indicates that here is a technology that may very well become quite accessible in the not too distant future you won't need a technician you won't need a surgeon you'll just be able to buy this thing and then use it
0: yes that's right yeah there's uh companies are selling them there's been quite a lot of Commercial Excitement, Facebook uh, are hiring BCI people, The Economist has, has done a special edition focusing on the economic possibilities, Elon Musk company, Neuralink is, is uh, engaged with
1: them, uh, and many others. Okay, so they're, they're on the way. Well, let's go to another couple of definitions <laughs> that we need before we jump in here. This is um, these terms, these legal terms, actus reus and mens rea. Now, what do these terms mean and how do they play into this discussion? Yeah,
0: so first of all, I should say the the Latin terms. And generally, the, the prosecution have got to prove, uh, at least in serious offences, both actus reus and mens rea beyond reasonable doubt. The actus reus for an offence is a criminal act, which, of course, is usually a a bodily act. Uh, So perhaps if you uh, think about the crime of of murder, the actus reus would be an act uh, causing death. So
1: So the, the bodily element of criminal conduct, the hand that wields the knife or the gun, the leg that delivers the kick, this sort of thing...
0: Yeah, so there has to be some conduct on the part of the uh, defendant, and it's always some sort of bodily conduct uh, in the case of acts. So, yeah, punching someone, stabbing someone, or even, say, using your your vocal cords and mouth to utter words in some circumstances. False are,
1: statements under oath. The voice that makes the false statement constitutes the actus reus or part of the actus so, reus. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, for example, in crimes of deception, some sort of uh, verbal communication. But that's not the only thing that the prosecution need to prove. They also need to prove mens rea—that's guilty mind—in at least in serious offences, and um, you know, so. One of the mens rea we have for murder is intention to kill. So in the case of a, a murder charge, the prosecution would need to prove generally that a person has committed some act that caused death and uh, that's a bodily act. Usually they also have to prove something about what the person's mental state was. So if they were able to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the person intended to kill them, then subject to there being a, some other defence. It looks like there's mur- that's a murder
1: if they prove both those things. And is it important for existing criminal law that actus reus and mens rea, the physical and the mental intentional mm-hmm. component of a crime, that these be seen as related but separate things?
0: Yeah, I, I, th- I think the idea is that the person's got to have done something, but it matters whether they intended it or whether they were careless or it was an accident, that almost anybody would have made. It's generally, at least for serious crimes, not sufficient that they've killed someone. It matters uh, what they were thinking when they they killed someone, and that's the idea.
1: So how then do these brain-computer interfaces, these BCIs, complicate this picture of actus reus and mens rea?
0: Yeah, so... Let's say a a normal case of murder, let's say somebody stabbed someone and killed someone. Well, it's clear what the conduct constituting the actus reus was. It was the voluntary action of the hand plunging into the victim's chest and subsequently causing their death. But if you can imagine perhaps somebody, instead of uh, using a a knife or a, a gun... What they do is they, they intend to kill someone, so they got the men's rea for murder, but instead of uh, stabbing them, they uh, control a drone by way of uh, mental action. So they're, they've got a BCI that's reading uh, the neural activity associated with what they're thinking, and by controlling the drone, they fly into someone, knock them over, and kill them. In that situation, it's an interesting question, so what was the criminal act? You know, so in the, in the murder case, the, the criminal act might be the, the voluntary action of uh, stabbing someone, but in the brain drone murder case, it's not so clear, and perhaps uh, you might think, well, okay, the person thought something, they, they performed some mental act, and the BCI has detected that, and that was the command that caused the drone to um, fly into someone and kill them. But that's unusual for the law. The The idea of uh, a mental act being the criminal act that the prosecution need to prove is, is quite unusual. Usually it's a bodily act, something that somebody did with their muscles, you know, mouth uh, in terms of speaking or their arms or pulling a trigger or something.
1: And is part of the problem here or part of the issue here that the distinction between... Actus reus and mens rea—the bodily act and the intention—that that that distinction collapses in some sense.
0: First of all, I should say there's no decided cases on this, so we're we're speculating.
1: (laughs) We're in the realm of the hypothetical, yeah.
0: We're in the realm of the hypothetical, and we're speculating what a court might do. But a court might say it's the it the you can have a mental act, and that's the actus reus, and then. It seems like both the guilty mind, the mens rea, and the um, actus rea are both mental in some sense. So, yeah, you might see it as a kind of blurring of the distinction, perhaps. That's one way of viewing it. Mm.
1: But here's what I think about this so far. I mean, if if I have a prosthetic hand and I hit someone with it and they die as the result of that, there's no doubt about my criminal responsibility. Mm. So why is the case less straightforward when it comes to a BCI? Why, why couldn't a drone, for example, simply be construed as a sort of prosthetic appendage, you know, distinct from me yeah. in one sense, but still me in that it acts on my attention to kill someone as a prosthetic hand or, or, or foot might do? I
0: think it it could be, but there are some implications of of, uh, of going that way. What well, One way, I just want to sort of make a little distinction, but um, in terms of somebody... Um, Killing someone with their arm, and their arm's a prosthetic arm. Well, there's still involvement of the muscle system. The body's involved in some way, albeit a prosthetic arm that has now become part of the body. Whereas in the you know in a direct neural interface, uh, the muscle system isn't uh, involved in in that way. The other thing is, um, if you were to take the view, okay, well the drone is part of the uh, defendant's body. If you think of it that way, then it, you might think, well, if somebody smashes the drone, is that an assault or is it a property crime? You know, you might start to have to think, OK, well, that, if we're going that way, well, maybe if you smash a drone, that's an assault. It's a crime against the person, not a crime against property. And uh, there might be some sort of implications of, of uh, the courts going that way.
1: On RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest is Alan McKay, whose interest in criminal law and neurotechnology has got him thinking about what sort of crimes could be committed via brain computer interfaces and how these crimes might pose unprecedented challenges for legal processes. in unpacking this a little further you pose a very interesting hypothetical example of what you've called neurobionic revenge porn which is such an irresistible phrase we have to explore it <laughs> we have to explore it further yep. what's the situation there or the hypothetical situation
0: so many jurisdictions have now criminalized what's colloquially known as, as revenge uh, porn it's often in um more formally known as intimate image abuse, but traditional revenge porn, well, I shouldn't say traditional, it's a, a relatively new offence. But a, a re, one way that somebody might commit a revenge porn offence is perhaps after a breakup, say a man is upset with his girlfriend after a breakup and he uh, uploads intimate images onto social media knowing that she doesn't consent. Well, in that situation, it looks like they've committed a a revenge porn offence, at least in New South Wales and the jurisdictions that have criminalised it. So that's the standard way. Let's assume he's done it by clicking on a mouse and uh, a bodily way. Now, if we think of a different situation in which instead of um, doing it by bodily actions a traditional bodily actions, he... uh, uses a BCI. So he assembles the intimate images that he wants to upload. And perhaps uh, the BCI is controlled by him imagining various uh, bodily actions like hand waves. So this is a way that BCIs sometimes operate. They are um, programmed to recognize certain bodily actions, like, for example, waving your hand as a command to move a cursor right, or to move it left, or or, or so forth. So he assembles the uh, images on his computer by imagining various bodily actions, gets them all ready, and then the final step that is to trigger upload is to, let's say, imagine waving his right hand. And let's assume the BCI is programmed to um, detect the neural activity and uh, understand that as equivalent to an upload command. So he gets the images together, away the images go, and they're up on social media. So the question is, okay, well, what did he do? What was the actus reus in that situation? Let's say men's no problem. We We know... He intended to distribute them and knows that that she didn't consent. But what's the actus reus? It seems to me there's a few possibilities. So they might say, well, in the past, bodily actions have have been the conduct constituting the actus reus. But now technology's moved on and we're going to accept that you can have a mental act is the conduct constituting the actus reus, the criminal act. You can have mental actus reus. So another possibility is they might say, well, let's try and keep the conduct constituting the actus reus bodily. So they might say, well, brains are part of bodies. So John, the offender, when he uh, imagined the hand wave, he kind of uh, jiggled his brain. He made some... Neural activity happened in his motor cortex, and that neural activity, that was the conduct constituting the actus reus. That's a bit strange, and you know, you might say, well, perhaps the courts are not really accepting the relationship between mind and body. They're committed to some sort of weird kind of dualism. Maybe a third possibility is let's assume that the uh, offender acted with a implanted brain computer interface, or the courts might think, well, the offender's a cyborg, they're part biological, they're, uh, and they're part non-biological, so they've got a BCI and some wire coming out of their brain, uh, but that's all part of them, the BCI and the wire, that's part of the offender. So on that view, you might say, well, the flow of signal through the wire out of the offender's brain, uh, that was not something that happened after he acted. That was uh, part of his action. He flowed signal through the wire part of his body, and that was the conduct constituting the actus reus. But that's strange, too. If you start thinking like that, you might need to think, well, where does the offender end and cyberspace begin uh, as signal flows out? Uh, is it once it leaves the confines of his scalp then that's no longer part of him or does he extend out into cyberspace? So I guess the upshot of it is there's th- there seems to be three options. There's the mental act, there's the neuroactivity option, there's the Uh, cyborg wire option where the electrical signal flows, but they're all a bit strange.
1: Well, they're such, I mean, as you say, they are strange things to consider. And how likely is it, do you think, that these issues could amount to a criminal defence which was robust enough for a court to be unable to convict someone who had committed revenge porn in this way?
0: I don't think they amount... To a defence, I, th- I think if somebody intentionally uploads intimate images without someone's consent, there's good e- evidence of that, they'll get convicted. The question is a, a theoretical level, and the question is, what's the conduct constituting the actus reus. However, you know, I think perhaps these issues could lead to some strange questions about liability. So, for example, if the uh, defendant said... Oh, the thought just popped into my head. There could be some debate about liability, but in in you know I, I don't think there's there's any chance of the courts saying we're not going to convict somebody who has engaged in this kind of conduct merely because they didn't act through their body and they acted through by way of bci I think yeah. that's highly unlikely,
1: but as you say, the issue of liability becomes pertinent here and There's also the fact, isn't there, that we're not always consciously aware of our intention. So is it possible that my brain-computer interface could act in such a way that it read my intention and acted on it before the intention hit my consciousness and became a decision?
0: That would be a very strange situation for the the law, yeah. I mean, there's some research that suggests that neural activity connected with people's uh, actions precede conscious awareness of the, uh, the intention to act. And if a BCI detected pre-conscious neural activity and then engaged in some kind of action based on that pre-conscious neural activity and did something bad like uploaded re- revenge porn or killed someone or, or whatever the bad conduct was and the, the defendant said that this all happened before he or she intended Uh, it would be a very strange situation for the criminal law to wrestle with.
1: There's also an interesting question raised about rehabilitation, isn't there, where if, if the offender had his BCI rewired in such a way as to make it impossible for him or her to upload pornographic images, would that constitute proper rehabilitation and would it perhaps affect sentencing?
0: That would also be a very strange thing to argue, so um, if prior to sentencing they they had the um, BCI reprogrammed to make it difficult or impossible to upload intimate images and an offender said, well, you don't need to worry about rehabilitation, I'm I'm rehabilitated, the courts would have to decide, well, is the BCI, uh, is that a tool that the offender uses or is it part of them? If they took the view that the BCI is part of them and the uh, offender is a, a part biological, part uh, non biological, and some sort of cyborg, then you might say, well, okay, well, they are rehabilitated. But if the court was to see it as something external to them, a tool they use, well, it wouldn't really go to the question of whether or not they're rehabilitated.
1: There's also the issue of what you call punitive code. What is this and how might it be affected?
0: The issue of punitive code goes to the programming of a BCI uh, in response to crime. So if it became an expectation of the public that the uh, law should do something about this and um, if uh, sometime in the future it became permissible for... um, Judges, perhaps, to order some sort of mandatory reprogramming. I mean, let's assuming that a lot of people were committing crimes by way of BCI, then that would seem to involve software engineers in criminal justice work, perhaps uh, engaging in uh, programming that made offending impossible, or perhaps uh-huh. engaging in programming that was aimed at deterring offenders perhaps by detecting preliminary steps towards committing crimes and then issuing a warning to the offender to stop. Some BCIs could perhaps uh, intervene on the brain and uh, try and change the state of the brain to elicit some kind of response in the offender which makes them want to desist from uh, what they're doing. These kind of questions are strange because um, it seems to involve engineers in engineering uh, the uh, defendants' BCI, or even if you think that BCI is part of the offender's brain and mind system, then engineering their brain and mind. It's sort of punitive code in in the sense that coders on that, albeit quite science fiction at the moment... uh, view of of criminal justice are engaging in some of the functions that other criminal justice processes have uh, thus far engaged
1: in. Well, these are all hypothetical questions, as you've pointed out. And I mean, they don't seem to exist too far beyond the horizon of possibility, but they are hypothetical at this point. So, how thorough a rethinking of criminal law would these cases require? And do you... Anticipate or expect that criminal law will be looking at these cases while they're still hypothetical, or is it, a, is it more just we you know we wait till the precedents start coming in and then and then deal with it?
0: In a way, it's quite fundamental because the first point that I discussed the issue of the conduct constituting the actus reus. This is really criminal law at a very basic and fundamental level. Um, The idea of of something so fundamental in the criminal law being being challenged by technology is quite radical. You know, of course, technology marches on and uh, there's new problems and perhaps new offenses that need to be created to stop people hacking and that sort of thing. But uh, this is not just creating new offenses. This is going to the elements of a crime at a very fundamental level. So in a way, it's... uh, the challenge is greater than perhaps some other technologies that have created problems for the criminal law, and there's many of them. Um, At the moment, there are quite a lot of uh, philosophers thinking about BCIs and moral responsibility and BCIs and criminal responsibilities. There's not many legal scholars yet that are thinking about these issues or have published on them at, at least. And my suspicion is that just somewhere somebody will uh, commit an offense by way of BCI and that the legal system will just have to react to it. It's probably when it gets to an appeal case where if, for example, somebody commits some kind of offense uh, and then they say the thought was uh, just popped into their head, And they get convicted anyhow and then they go up to an appeal and then at that stage the appeal court might have to um, think about right what really was the conduct constituting the actus reus because they have to decide that first before deciding whether it was involuntary and so my feeling is we'll just just wait until there's a case i don't think there'll be much in the way of forward planning but there can be some thinking done by scholars and I guess law reform bodies could do something, but I don't know whether they're likely to.
1: Well, as you say, these questions are being thought about by philosophers. And I guess, you know, a lot of this just goes down to that perennial philosophical issue of the mind body distinction, among other things. Do you think that legal professionals need to become philosophers in a sense, or need to become better acquainted with some of this philosophy, and that's how they're going to deal with it?
0: I think they should do, yes. Um, criminal cases and other legal cases have always raised philosophical issues. But I think now, because of the march of uh, technology, BCIs, artificial intelligence, gene editing, that sort of thing, the novel cases come are starting to come quicker and faster. And for these novel cases, like the example of uh, brain-computer interfaces, the law kind of uh, runs out a bit. And that's why we need to be a bit cautious about saying what a court will do in deciding what the conduct constituting the the actus reus is. And because of that, I think uh, there's more room for uh, a sort of philosophical argument to win the day because in these cases, uh, the law's kind of run out. And... um, a sort of philosophical argument might do more work in the absence of uh, of, of clear and binding precedents or legislation. Yeah,
1: it's interesting that you talk about it in terms of a philosophical argument winning the day. <laughs> it makes me wonder about how many times philosophical arguments have actually won the day, right? I mean, philosophy is notoriously in the business of raising questions while legal procedures require cut-and-dried answers. Is that a problem there, that, that philosophy, just given the very nature of philosophy, it's unlikely to, to fix the problem?
0: I think it's probably true in the, uh, you know, in the lower courts, but once you get up to something like the High Court in Australia or the Supreme Court in the US, and uh, in many ways the reasons why a case has gone up there is because it's, the law is fairly unclear. Uh, And perhaps in those kind of cases, some sort of philosophical argument might do more work than in a case where uh, really the legal precedents, uh, the legislation can do all the work of making the argument. There's no need to engage in the philosophical question to win the case.
1: Well, we may well see this playing out. And if it does, we'll uh, certainly get you back on the program to to talk about some of the issues that are coming up when these cases do start hitting the courts. Um, Alan McKay, it's been a very interesting discussion. Thanks very much for coming on The Philosopher's Zone. And
0: thanks very much for
1: inviting me. Thank you. Alan McKay, lecturer in criminal law at the University of Sydney, affiliate member of the Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics at Macquarie University, and he's co-editor of a recent collection of essays on free will and the law. Some really interesting stuff there, and we're going to put publication details online. That's the Philosopher's Zone. You can find us via the RN website. Don't forget to check our podcast if you haven't found it already. You can subscribe via the ABC Listen app and then a new program just pops up for you every week and you can listen anytime you like. Thanks for your company. I'm David Rutledge. Our producer is Diane Dean and we will see you next time. Bye for now.